Now, we're going to read from the Scriptures. We're turning this morning to the book of Ezra. And we're asking you to turn to Ezra chapter 3. Ezra chapter 3. And we'll read together the chapter. Ezra chapter 3. Let's hear the word of the Lord together. And when the seventh month was come, and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. Then stood up Jeshua, the son of Josedek, and his brethren the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, and built at the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And they set the altar upon his basis, for fear was upon them because of the people of those countries. And they offered burnt offerings thereon unto the Lord, even burnt offerings morning and evening. They also kept the feast of tabernacles, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number, according to the custom, as the duty of every day required. And afterward offered the continual burnt offering, both of the new moons and of all the set feasts of the Lord that were consecrated, and of every one that willingly offered a freewill offering unto the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month began they to offer burnt offerings unto the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. They, also, they gave money also unto the masons, and to the carpenters, and meat and drink and oil unto them of Zidon, and to them of Tyre, to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea of Joppa, according to the grant that they had of Cyrus king of Persia. Now in the second year of their coming into the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month began Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua the son of Josedek, and the remnant of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all they that were come out of the captivity unto Jerusalem, and appointed the Levites from twenty years old and upwards to set forward the work of the house of the Lord. Then stood Jeshua with his sons and his brethren, Kadamiel, and his sons, the sons of Judah. Together they set forward the workmen in the house of God, the sons of Henadad with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord after the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang together by course and praising and giving thanks unto the Lord, because he is good, for his mercy endureth forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and chief of the fathers who were ancient men that had seen the first house when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes 
wept with a loud voice, and then he shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people, for the people shouted with a loud shout, and the noise was heard afar off. Amen. We know the Lord will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of the Holy Scriptures. Now, my text this morning is taken from the book of Ezra, the chapter 3, and it says in verses 1 to 3, And when the seventh month was come, and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. Then stood up Jeshua, the son of Zosadek, and his brethren the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Sealtetel, and his brethren, and built at the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And they set the altar upon his basis. Now, my theme today is gathering together on the basis of the cross. After 70 years in captivity in the land of Babylon, a very small remnant of 42,360 souls had returned to the land of Israel. They had returned, of course, with a royal commission from uh, King Cyrus of Persia to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. So here they are, focused on restoring the worship of God and the work of God in their ancient homeland. And this, of course, was despite the fact that they faced many bitter enemies. These enemies were powerful. And these enemies, of course, were bent on trying to prevent the rebuilding program, especially of the house of God. The people of God, however, they pursued their task with great zeal, and they were full of love for the Lord. This was a day of new beginnings. They could say, well, this is the day that the Lord hath made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. This is a day for them when they had a new beginning with God. So I want you to think, here they are in the seventh month, and that's what the Bible says, and when the seventh month was come. And this, of course, is the seventh month of our calendar year, the month of July. And this was a very important month in the Jewish calendar, because it was on this month that the children of Israel had in the past celebrated many great feasts unto the Lord their God. So here they are in the seventh month, having just come back from Babylon, they desire to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And in order to do so, the first thing that they had to do was gather themselves together as one man in Jerusalem. Remember at this time, Jerusalem was in ruins. So was the temple. Any passerby from that, towards that city might have thought, well, there's no hope for that place. It's highly improbable that there's ever going to be any change there now or in the future. That, that's nothing but a pile of rubble, a pile of stones. That's a monument to a former day. Now remember this remnant that returned. They could remember the power of Jehovah. They remember that it was their God that brought them out of Egypt in the first place. That he had redeemed them by the blood of the Lamb. They could remember God's promises. After the pain of 70 years in captivity, where are they now? They're back in their homeland. This is a homecoming. You've got to think of the people of the homecoming. And they're standing among the ruins of the holy city. And, and they, they have realized something wonderful. God doesn't forget his promises. 
even though they're long in fulfillment, even though they had to wait patiently upon them. Seventy years have passed. God has a plan. God has a purpose. I believe they held on to that truth. They thought to themselves, we're God's people. We make up the true uh, church of God in the world. They had been redeemed by blood. They had repented of their sin. They had been reconciled to God. They had been returned to their land. They're a part of the earthly congregation of the Lord. And in order to celebrate these religious feasts unto the Lord in the seventh month, the first thing they needed to do was not only to gather together in Jerusalem as one man, the second thing was they needed to repair and rebuild the altar. And that's exactly what they did. Despite being full of fear for those who opposed the rebuilding program, the enemies knew what a rebuilding altar would mean. It would be a restoration of acceptable worship unto the Lord. It would, be, it would mean a, a manifestation of God's power and presence. It would mean the Lord in the midst of his people once again. What did the people do? Well, well, they cleared the ground in the temple area. They uncovered the original spot where the foundation of the altar was, and they rebuilt the altar on that exact place. They set the altar, as verse 3 says, upon his basis. Whose basis? God's basis. That's where God had instructed their forefathers to erect the altar. See, the altar of God to them was precious. The altar of God spoke of a, a peculiar unchangeableness in regards to its function as well as its foundation. And as a result, they began to restore then the true worship of God. And they pushed on then toward the uh, full restoration of the work and witness of God in Jerusalem. Their hearts, I believe, were fully committed to that task despite many, many fears. And of course, you could read the end of the chapter at what happened then in the second year from verse 8 right down to verse 13. But, but as I thought of this this morning, gathering together in the bases of the cross I thought of our coming together again into the house of God on, on the seventh month. I, I thought of us gathering together as one uh, this morning. And, and there were three thoughts that came to me. Let me just share them with you and then we'll be done. Think of, firstly, a priority that is vital. It says, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. Now, think of the people coming back. As I've said, a homecoming people in a very public and visible way. And what did they do? They gathered together as one man in Jerusalem. They overcame their fears. They overcame their difficulty, their, their obstacles. They, they decidedly wanted the Lord again to move and to work and to do great things for them. See, I was thinking of that word together. And that word together is recorded in the Bible 469 times. And it's a wonderful word. And we could link it up, remember, what the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered together in my name. There am I in the midst. I want you to think of a couple of little subpoints. Notice their urgency here. The seventh month. Hello, 
long did it take them to come from Babylon to Jerusalem? 42,360 souls. You know what took them about six months? After 70 years being away, some records were being used to reallocate families to their particular hometowns. And that's what chapter 2 of Ezra is all about. Um, there, there was only something like 123 in Jerusalem and 128 sent somewhere else. And they're beginning to settle in. You, you, you think of it, lots going on, loads to do, rebuilding their houses, maybe repairing some roofs, focusing on job, um, thinking about the harvest and the winter and gathering food, uh, establishing a living for their family, helping out their friends. And yet the strange thing is, here was the urgency when the seventh month came and they had just come back from Babylon. One of the first things they did was, was to gather among the ruins and begin to focus and think about the work and witness of God. You see, as far as they were concerned, there's no greater work than the Lord's work. The Lord's work at first place. God's worship at first place. God's worship to them was a priority, as we're going to see. Remember the scripture says, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And, you know, we ask ourselves the question, is Sabbath day worship an urgent priority for us in our lives? Do we see it as something vital? Remember what we read in the book of uh, Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25. And this is not to send anyone on a guilt trip this morning. But listen to these words, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. There's another of those 469 words, together. Hebrews 10, 25, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. We haven't met in here for the 16 weeks physically in the building, but we did meet. We, we met together in your homes. We met together through the live broadcast. Now, now, why was that? Because Sabbath day worship was a priority, an urgent priority for many of us. And yet I, I asked the question again, is the worship and the work and the, 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 the witness of God first and foremost in our lives? Remember the Lord Jesus said, uh, Matthew 6 and 33, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things shall be added unto you. You see, it was God first. It was God second. It was God third because God was at the center. And of course, this was the hardest thing for them to do, to, to leave their homes, to, to travel from the cities and towns that they had been placed with, with a rebuilding program there, with, with crops to plant, with, with, with other things to do. And yet, by the grace of God, they certainly didn't do it in their own natural ability and strength. By the grace of God, God had put it into their heart. In this seventh month, a new beginning, as they thought about the celebration of the Feast of the Tabernacles, as one man, they, they gathered in Jerusalem, 42,360 souls. Do you know, it's a wonderful thing to think about a new beginning with God. A new beginning with God is possible, no matter how spiritually low you are. And maybe during this past 16, 17 weeks, maybe you've failed the Lord in a particular area. 
Maybe you're guilty of some deliberate sin or rebellion against the Lord. Maybe you feel that your heart is cold and you've turned away from the Lord and you've drifted carelessly into the world and the things of the world. Maybe you've been uh, exposed to bitter trials and, and, and you've been so battered and wrecked that you, you, you've sort of lost out with the Lord and, and, and you've left off caring for him or, 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 or receiving counsel from him and, and you're sort of dissatisfied and, and despairing at this moment. And what do you need? You need a fresh start. And you can have a fresh start because that's what these people were having. Fresh start is scary. A fresh start means, again, fearful because of the risk of failing once more. We're well aware of the world trying to squeeze us into its mold, the, the pull of materialism. We, we're conscious of a, a covetous spirit with our eyes and hearts and minds and the things of time and sense, and we need to guard against that. I'm well aware of the pull of hedonism. We're in a pleasure-seeking age when men are lovers of themselves rather than lovers of God. I'm well aware that we're in an age of secularization when God is completely left out of the picture. And, of course, that's what's happening in, in the governments of the United Kingdom and the government of the United States of America and many other governments throughout the world, men doing their own thing. And there's no urgent priority given to God and the things of God. A priority that's vital because it was rooted in urgency. Notice very quickly here, it was rooted in unity. How did they gather together? They gathered together as one man. They were all united. They had a common plan. They had a common purpose. And what was that common plan and purpose? It was to further the worship and the witness and the work of God. And part of that, of course, involved the restoration of the altar. That was the first thing they did. So they could offer the daily offerings unto the Lord. So they could progress then from offering the daily offerings to, to uh, begin to relay the foundation of the Lord's house. I thought of the word team. You've heard me talking about this before. T-E-A-M. Together everyone achieves more. They work together. And of course, that, that's what's true in the congregation of the Lord. It's not a one-man band. The past 16 weeks wasn't one man. I, I've already thanked Mary. I, I thank Mark. Um, I, I thank you for listening. Um, you see, it's a teamwork in the house of God. One teaches and preaches. One to play the organ. One to administer uh, things that need to be administered. One to drive the bus. Uh, one to assist with the youth work, one to help with the children, one to encourage, uh, so on and so forth. You see, there's an unfolding plan here in purpose. And they were united in that. It was a common goal. They, 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 they thought of the temple first when they come to Jerusalem. Amid all the ruins, not the walls, not the gates, not their own houses. You see, in this togetherness, they, I believe they felt the Lord's promise. I felt, believe they felt the Lord's providence in their lives. I believe they felt the Lord's presence with them. I believe they felt the Lord's purpose. See, true unity is very precious, remember. Remember what the psalmist said in Psalm 133. He made that tremendous statement, uh, what unity was like. And he said this, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And it's not only precious and pleasant, but I want to tell you, it's priceless. You, you think of a team not working together. Where it's a team of oxen. That's why they weren't allowed to put a, 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 an ass and an ox together in the same yoke. Because both would want to do their thing. 
and both wouldn't get on. And, and you see, if, if, if we don't work together a team, think of a team playing football or any other type of sport, if they don't all work together for the common goal of winning their match, then, then it's going to impact upon the, their attempt to, to, to do it together. And, and that's the very point here. They gathered together. Remember Paul says in Ephesians uh, chapter uh, 4 um, in verse uh, 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The moment the children of Israel come back from Babylon, in the seventh month, they had an eye and a heart to the worship and the work of God, and they were in it together till a man. It was as if they were saying, the Lord has given us a great work to do. And, and even though our beginnings are small, we're looking to the Lord for his help and his blessing upon us. I want you to think also there's a uniformity here. If you look with me at Ezra chapter 3, it says in the end of verse 2, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. You see, the people saw all that they were doing before the Lord as doing it in obedience to Scripture. They took the law of God into their hearts and minds. They delighted in the words of the book. Remember the psalmist, Psalm 1, the godly man, is characterized by a negative, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Think of his positive outlook, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law doth he meditate day and night. See, what about us? The priority that's vital gathering together, filling our mind with the words of the book. We're doing it because he has instructed and commanded us to do it. I read a story recently about a woman in China. She was a midwife. She, she was 90 years of age. She, she had delivered hundreds of babies in a variety of hospitals. But you know what? She had a handicap. She couldn't read nor write. She was embarrassed by that, but she wanted to learn to read and write. And you know one of the reasons why she wanted to learn to read and write? So she could learn the Bible. So she could read the scriptures. So they told her, well, you'll have to go back to school. Oh, that'll be all right. You'll have to sit in the classroom with a bunch of other girls. That'll be all right. You'll have to wear a school uniform. That'll be all right. You'll have to learn A, B, C. That'll be all right. I thought of that. A passion to learn to read the scriptures. What about us? And you know, there's many helps available. I confess there's many big words that, that I even struggle with reading and, and don't often get the pronunciation right. And if the uh, Reverend Ken Elliott, the late Reverend Elliott, was alive, I would be told off uh, very much so. But uh, there's helps. Uh, a man called Alexander Scurby, or who uh, reads the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you'll, you'll find it online. I'm not even sure if it's on our website. Um, I heard the story of the late Dr. Paisley talking about uh, the late uh, Dr. Uh, Jacob Shelley, that, that any time he was in his presence, at home, in the car, in the bus, of course he wouldn't have been driving, he was reading the Bible. It always struck that. I remember him sharing that with me. I was talking to him about the late John Compton and, and John Compton reading the Bible in the nursing home. And, and he said he remembered uh, late uh, old Dr. Shelley doing the same thing. You see, here's the priority that's vital for us. 
There's a uniformity because it's based in the scriptures. There's a unity. There's a coming together. But there has to be an urgency uh, to to the work of God. Notice secondly and very quickly, there's a procedure that's victorious. What's the first thing they did here? If you look at the text, it says in verse 2, when they come together as one man to Jerusalem, and build it the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt sacrifices thereon. Do you know that they built the altar in exactly the same place where the altar always stood? That was the first thing. Now, why do that? Why not build their houses? Why not repair their roofs? Why not set up the gates of Jerusalem? Why not repair the walls first, given that they had many enemies who were going to attack them? Because it was fundamental. Because it was foundational. You see, if they were going to draw near to God and celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacles, they needed to draw near to God in the basis of the blood sacrifice. And of course, the the burnt offering and the the burnt altar reminds us of the sacrificial life and death of Jesus Christ. It reminds me of Calvary. And that's why I got Barbara to play that for uh, us at the offering. Uh, Burdens are lifted at Calvary. It reminds me of the cross work of Christ. You see, it all has to do with a right relationship with God. It has to do with forgiveness of sins. You see, God has said that he would meet us there. I remember in the book of Exodus, chapter 29, he says in verse 33, And there I will meet with the children of Israel, and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. You can read more of that meeting with God in Exodus chapter 29. Remember in the book of Hebrews 9.22, we read, And without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. It was John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And this procedure that's vicarious, there's a revelation here. See, let me ask this morning, where did the idea of sacrifice come from? How did fallen sinful man come up with the idea and the concept of offering a sacrifice to appease God? Did you know that it come by example from God himself? Think of what he did to our first parents in Eden after the fall into sin and us in the loins of Adam. He clothed Adam and Eve with the skins of the animals. That meant the slaying of a victim to provide a covering for sin. And of course, there's only one ground of approach to God. And it's only ever on the basis of the blood sacrifice. That's God's picture. The example of himself. There's the necessity of the shed blood of Christ. And we can trace that all the way through the Bible. Genesis 3. Genesis 22, 18. Uh, Isaac uh, being offered in the altar and in the ram in the stead of Isaac. Remember Abraham said when the boy asked him, where's the lamb? Genesis 22, 8. The Lord will provide himself a lamb. Remember in the Passover night. Exodus 12, 13. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. In the book of Leviticus, we read in Leviticus chapter 17 and in the verse 11, this tremendous statement. He says, therefore, the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for your souls. We could tie it into Isaiah 53 verses 5 and 6. But he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Come to the New Testament. John the Baptist in the banks of Jordan. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. You see, Jesus Christ, remember, is the only propitiatory 
vicarious sacrifice that God accepts. God only has one way of saving sinners. He has no plan B. He never had a plan B. If plan A failed, he only had one way. Calvary was not an afterthought. This was always in the plan of God. Revelation 13 and 8, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. You see, there's an eternal dimension to the cross. It was always in the heart and mind of God. Its, its eternal purpose was there. It's connected to his eternal degree. Not only did I see a revelation here, but, but I see a root here. What was the root of this revelatory message? It's the grace of God. God doesn't accept a works-based religion. A works-based religion is not the ground of our salvation. It's always and only on the basis of grace. God's marvelous grace. Remember what Paul says there in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1 and in the uh, verse 7, he made that tremendous statement. Ephesians 1 and 7, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Hi. According to the riches of his grace. The basis for the blood sacrifice is rooted in the grace of God, God's undeserved, unmerited favor. And of course, I believe that we need a return to this because the spring of all God's dealings with us has to be the grace of God. See, apostate Protestantism today, liberalism, modernism. No, it's in the basis of your life. It's in the basis of your example. It's in the basis of your works. But let's remember, no man deserved ever to be saved. In fact, the opposite is true. We deserve to be damned. Because for every unconverted man, every breath in his body, every word in his tongue, every thought in his mind, it's all enmity towards God. The natural man cannot please God. They, they have no fear or thought of God. They, they don't realize that God holds the very breath that they breathe in his hand. Maybe we could ask this question. What, what motivates God to do this for us? Can I tell you there's nothing that compelled God to show grace to any sinner? There was no necessity in God to create us. There was no necessity in God to love us at all. Do you know that God only loves us in his son, Jesus Christ? He never loves us apart from Christ. He only loves us in Christ. It's never outside of him. We're only accepted and treated as righteous in Christ. Ephesians 1 and 6, accepted in the beloved. Why does God accept you and me? Why does God choose you and me? Why does God love us? The answer is, it's only in Christ. See, there was nothing in the heart of God that melted and moved God toward us. You, you, you think of a, a daddy, and maybe this daddy says in the home, there'll be no dog here. I don't want any pup chewing my slippers. I don't want any mess to clean up. And um, then one day you arrive home with this wee puppy in your arms, and it's got big lovely eyes, and it looks at the daddy, and it gives that wee sort of cheeky grin, and, and the daddy's heart's just melted. And the dog chews his slippers and makes a mess all over the place. And, and daddy just grows to accept it. But there's nothing like that in God. God only deals with us on the basis of free, sovereign grace. Could I tell you something else? There's a righteousness here. What is God's purpose in redeeming us? Well, it's to be conformed to the image of his son. Romans 8, 29. 
It's so that, remember, we're chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy, Ephesians 1 and 4, and before him in love. You see, it's a Christ-centered purpose. And that's received here, at least to me, in this procedure that's vicarious, the building of the altar, because it was God that revealed that the altar had to be built first. And it was rooted in the grace of God. And it was right that the people did that, because it was a Christ-centered purpose. See, remember, Christ appears for us in glory this morning as a newly slain lamb. Remember, the wounds of Christ appear before God perpetually fresh for us. Remember, there's a, there's a, 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 a focal point in, in the efficaciousness of the blood of Christ. Many see no value in the blood, but it's the blood of the everlasting covenant. It's really incomparable. It's uncorruptible. Remember what Paul could say there in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 12. He said this. He made a very, very interesting statement. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having attained eternal redemption for us. Could I tell you something else? There's not only a revelation here and a root here and a righteousness here, but there's a relationship here. See, this altar, young people, is a picture of Christ. Hebrews 13 and 8 says, we have an altar whereof we have a right to eat. Our altar is Christ. So this was a return to Christ-centered worship. The work and the witness of God is all to do with Christ, waiting before him on the foundation and ground of the blood. And there was a connection to the altar. Maybe I could say this this morning. See, some people imagine God's love to us in this way. Mr. A, he murdered a man. He's destined to die. He's been condemned to be executed. Mr. B, well, he's a single man. Mr. A's married. Mr. A has children. Mr. A has some qualities that make him deserve to live. Mr. B has no connection to Mr. A. Mr. A has no connection to Mr. B. But Mr. B volunteers to die in his place. And you see, people preach that and say, that's a picture of the love of God in Christ. Dying for someone else. And, and in a sense, I can see where they're coming from, but I want to tell you it's not right. I want to tell you it's not reasonable. Why? Because an innocent man would die. If Mr. A has no connection with Mr. B, that would make a, a monster out of the love of God. That's not what happened at Calvary. There was no justice in that. That's a denial of justice. See, when the Lord Jesus died on the cross, remember he came into the world as the second man. As in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Christ was the covenant head of the human race. Christ was given by, by God uh, from all eternity. And we were given to Christ by God from all eternity. He's the head and we're the body. And we were in union with him. And in Christ we're made alive. See, remember Christ was born for us. Christ lived for us. Christ died for us. Christ rose again for us. Christ is coming for us. It's in union with Christ. And that's the relationship. And it's all connected to this first altar that was erected. I finish. There's a people here that's victorious. There was a people of power in Jerusalem in the seventh month. Not everyone wanted the Lord's work to flourish and prosper. There were many enemies, bitter and powerful. 
And of course, what's true then is true today. Not everyone wants to see the work of God flourish in our day and generation. But in order for the work of God to flourish, there must be the preaching of Christ. It has to be Christ-centered. There has to be the exposure of sin and error. We have to have hearts that are on fire for God. There has to be a spirit of true unity. There has to be a, a, a focus daily in Christ. That it's, it's his work, it's his worship, it's his witness, it's his way. We, we, we need to come together as often as we can as one man. We need to have a plan. We need to have a purpose. So this people of power had a purpose. And their purpose was guided by the fear of the Lord. And if they feared the Lord, they had nothing else to fear or nothing else to regard. Maybe you're fearful of things, COVID-19. Many other things are worrying and troubling you. Get your eyes on the Lord. Fill your mind with God's task. Here's God's purpose for us. And as I close, there was a people of praise here. Oh, how they praised the Lord at this time. Every detail, it was praise to the Lord. They were thankful to him. Their hearts are full of gladness. The Lord had turned everything around. The Lord hadn't abandoned them. The Lord's promise was true. And is that not true of us? We have got this great task of building the house of God spiritually unto the Lord. There'll be many tears, tears of joy, but, but, but tears of hardness and difficulty. But what we have to do is get our eyes on him and say, this is the day that the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Think of coming together as one man. Here's a priority that's vital. Think of the procedure that's vicarious. They built the altar. And think of this people that's victorious. Why? Because they had power in the ground of the blood. They were filled with the purpose, the fear of God. So they could offer praise that was acceptable to the Lord. May the Lord take these few stammering thoughts and bless them to you today.